Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's get ready to rumble! I really just wanted to hear myself say that. Slavo is in a mood. <laughs> I'm in a mood. I'm in a mood. I'm here. He's feeling good. I'm feeling good. Paz, how are you today? I'm doing very good today because we have a special guest, BMAC, on. BMAC, you heard his voice. There he is. Here I am. Here he Thank is. you guys for having me on. Yeah. And beyond that specialness, we also have like a fascinating character, Jim Jones. This is where the Kool-Aid cult came from. This is just a wild story. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty crazy story, and it's something that um, as we go through different historical figures this is someone that's like completely off the rails almost different than everybody else absolutely and that's why today we have a special treat we're each gonna give one truth and one lie and we'll reveal them at the end so uh if you want to start out with your truth or lie (laughs) i tried to trick him there i tried to trick him all right uh jim jones had an alligator in a pond near the entrance of the church for protection And now my other truth or lie, a woman in front of the congregation testifies of having sex with a horse. (laughs) I don't know the answer to that one. (laughs) (laughs) They both like could be true in this story. Those are both way better than mine. Okay. So my first truth or lie was that Jim Jones Jr. actually survived the events of, uh, I forgot the date. So it was November 18th, November 18th, November 18th, 1978. So Jim Jones Jr. actually survived the events of November 18th, 1978. And then my other one is that Jim Jones actually had a sit down meeting with President Jimmy Carter. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. So my first one is Jim Jones and the People's Temple helped elect a mayor of San Francisco in 1976. And the second one is Jim Jones died of cyanide poisoning. Wow. All right. So before we step through Jim Jones' life chronologically, we are going to do a quick segment to give people a feel for what Jim Jones was like in his heyday. All righty then. We're doing You Could Be a Cult Leader If... And then slight extension, like you could be in a cult if if uh, if anybody has one of those. Does anybody want to go first? All right, first one off the board. This is the most <laughs> obvious one. <laughs> you might be a cult leader if no one can have sex, but you can have sex with anyone you want. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! That's the be- that that's like that's the most categorical one where it's like you are definitely a cult leader if you're the only one that's getting laid like male or female if the rules don't apply to you but yeah the rules don't apply to you the rules that you make for everybody else I'm gonna say uh, you might be a cult leader if you refer to yourself as a prophet and or a god (laughs) which is uh, a trap that Jim Jones tends to fall into as well yeah so while we're mentioning that yeah Jim Jones he would say he was like the reincarnation of just any famous great men Gandhi Marx Buddha, ultimately Jesus, he would always claim to be like the reincarnated soul of one of them. Yep, that's a definite cult leader move. Yeah. Okay, so this one, you might be a cult leader if 
you force your followers to cut off contact with old friends and family. Mm, that's a good one. Which, again, to bring this back to Jim Jones, he would, if they sent any letters out to family, he would look at the letters and make sure he thought they were appropriate and put the people's temple in a good light. That's a classic cult, cult leader move right there. <laughs> BMAC, what you got? You might be a cult leader if you're constantly stirring up paranoia, even if it's totally manufactured, and people that are in your cult have no idea because they're cut off from the rest of the world. That is a good one. One of the interesting things with uh, with Jim Jones and, and the People's Temple is that you like constantly read about how nobody was like sleeping ever. Yeah. And they were all like they everybody was working so much that they would be like up until two, three o'clock in the morning, like working or like doing like some sort of temple related activity. And then they would wake up the next day with like three hours of sleep. I I think that I read that like there were people that were like, I never got more than five hours of sleep. And it made it so people were more obedient because they were less like they couldn't really like think for themselves as much. And it was very it was a um, it was a very cult leader move by him because he was like he was deliberately making it so people didn't sleep so that they could uh, so that he could like make them more submissive. They would brag about it too. It was almost like a sense of pride, like a badge of honor, like, oh, you slept three hours last night. I only slept two hours. So I'm, I'm more loyal than you. There was one woman who said that she didn't sleep for like six days. That's insane. I That's thought you crazy. would die. I thought you would die if you had, didn't sleep. Totally crazy. And sometimes, sometimes abstinence in terms of like fasting or not sleeping was meant as a punishment for people that kind of stepped out of line or broke the rules of the people's temple. Like a lot of times, they had these these really hard and fast rules that if if someone broke them, they would call them up in front of the entire congregation and make them like confess what they had done and mm. and make them you know promise to to do better and and sometimes they would go like a week without eating as punishment yeah and, and to continue down that <laughs> that's that side side segment yeah their punishments it started off with stuff like this where they'd have to come in front of the church and like shame and then they eventually got to spanking and they would start with paddling. like a paddling they started with like a twig they moved up to like a board um they would okay when things started to get really crazy they would do boxing matches so if you were caught drinking they would put you up against three of the biggest people's temple member in in a boxing match in the the perpetrator who drank alcohol would just get beat up really bad and in some of the videos you could see jim jones cackling in the background yeah it's and, wild yeah and they would have like the person do a boxing match and then they would do one match and then they would like do another match and then they do another match and like they would get knocked out and they would pick them back up and like throw water on them and be like all right you're gonna do it again like, absolutely like brutal yeah. stuff and there was actually one of the defectors that was in this documentary that i watched where she had said that she did some sort of transgression and she got paddled with the board like a bunch of times that she was like seriously in pain and she went to work and people at work were like what is wrong with you you looks like you can't even sit down and that was where and inevitably she ended up leaving was because she told them she broke down crying and told them what happened and they were like you need to leave like that is completely <laughs> I always, ridiculous i always wonder about that too like these people had full-time jobs they were going out into the world every day and and working amongst non people's temple members and yeah Everyone else must have thought that they were 
really in some kind of weird situation. I don't know if people know because I think they're so committed to lying that they don't let you know that there's anything amiss because the the church leadership is I guarantee the church leadership is being like nobody else will understand. It, it's classic abuser mentality where um, where you try to you try to convince people it'll be worse if they tell anyone. So they make all their efforts to hide it. Yeah. So um, this woman who like broke down, it just so happened to be. But I bet in other situations with the same person, like before that, she had just she would just lie and get away with it and and, and yeah, uh, hide it from everyone. And before the People's Temple would give you a job, Jim Jones would like coach you, be like, "You have to do a stellar job. You represent People's Temple. We need to show people how great our way of living is." And also the kind of weird thing with these punishments he'd always be like i'm doing this for you this is to help you be a better person i don't want to do this but i'm gonna spank you in the butt to make you a better person i think that's what uh what we call gaslighting (laughs) i might be getting the uh i might be getting the definition a little bit wrong (laughs) that might be gaslighting right there Right, and they so, kept everything in-house, too. They, they didn't want to involve the police in anything because one of their big messages that, they, that really appealed to some of the African-Americans in the membership was police brutality and, you know, the police were really not treating them well. So they wanted to keep everything in-house, keep all the punishments in-house, and, and that was appealing to a lot of people. You're, like, convincing me to be mad. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe if punishments maybe, are in-house, maybe, maybe it's a good it idea. Good. You're making it sound good. All right, another sign you might be a cult leader or in a cult if no one can actually leave so if uh if people if it looks like people want to leave but they're not leaving that's a sign that you're in a cult because uh because <laughs> that just doesn't happen typically so whenever you're being held against your will uh that is uh that is a telltale sign absolutely yeah and when people would leave or would talk to jim jones about leaving he'd be like i had a vision if you leave you get hit by a car or he'd reach out to them and be like, I love you. I just want what's best for you. And he'd, he'd try to coax them. Such a jerk. And then sometimes, yeah, he'd send some big guys to convince you. Okay, you might be a cult leader if you were told not to see the experts, like medical doctors, because Jim Jones knows better. <laughs> That's a good one. You might be a cult leader if you routinely do some really sketchy stuff, but people look past it in the name of the cause. And they may even be complicit. Mm, yep. Um, you might be a cult leader if at your preaching there's any sort of chanting or uniform <laughs> uniform movement. Uh, like the uh, Jim Jones when he would go into the meeting and everybody would stand up together and then sit down together. That's a cult move. Yep, very uh, much so. It's, it's indicative of uh, what might be going on when they're in private. Yeah, I think I got one more. Oh, this is... Jim Jones, you demand a sober life and then don't follow it. And with Jim Jones, he hit pretty heavily the amphetamines, the pills, like tranquilizers. I don't know what he was tranquilizing with, but he was doing that as a drug. Oh, what is that? There's one There's one that the, the kids are doing. Ketamine. Ketamine. Oh, I think it's like a horse tranquilizer. Ketamine? Yeah, I don't know. BMAC, you're looking at me like you've done it. I absolutely, totally have... Not, <laughs> <laughs> okay. but I'm well, sure you are a historian. So I had to check with you. 
I'm you were giving me a look. Your eyes kind of got a little wide when we mentioned ketamine. I just had to check with you to make sure uh, you're keeping things on the up and up. I mean, he told me he did it as part of the research. But. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But uh, I guess we'll we'll kick things off. We've alluded to some, uh, some big dealings far off into the future, but we'll bring things back a little bit and talk about Jim Jones' childhood. Jim Jones was no, named James Warren Jones, not to be confused with James Earl Jones, who's the actor. He was born on May 13, 1931, in Crete, Indiana. So he was born in Crete, but then he lived. He grew up in Lynn. I think it was Lynn, Indiana. Yeah, sounds right. It's basically was just really rural, small town Indiana. Very poor. I think he lived in a shack without plumbing when he was first born. And yeah, he was 1931. So this is like depression era time so yeah. very 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 uh modest upbringing so he was an introvert as a kid he did a lot more reading than he did spending time with other people he was kind of a weird kid yeah. in the neighborhood which is kind of surprising because he becomes such a charismatic or he at least really resonated with a lot of people socially so it's surprising that you know in his younger days he wasn't also yeah and i i talked to brian about this where as a pastor, <laughs> as, where he becomes his pastor, and I was watching these videos where it's him speaking, and he is like, it's like so eloquent. He has so much charisma about him. Yeah. And then you hear about him as a child. All he did was read. All the kids in the neighborhood thought he was like just this kind of weirdo. I think one of the important things to note, too, is that he, like you mentioned, Slavo, like he didn't have much money growing up. His dad was had disability from World War One. I. I think he had mustard gas poisoning or something, and so his mom had to work full-time to support the family. When you don't have the means to be out there playing sports or doing stuff like that, you might turn to religion, especially if that's if that's something that's around in your yeah. town. And I know that the town he grew up in, was religion was a main focus. Yeah, I remember hearing some of these churches, people would speak in tongues. And so what speaking in tongues is, it's when people utter words but it's no like human language people believe it's like the holy spirit or a ghost word people believe either from the devil or from god you're like possessed almost and you're able to channel these other spirits and that's what's called speaking in tongues and is it like demonic or is it like holy so when people are speaking tongues in church typically it means the holy spirit came into them they're speaking in this godly language maybe so in Jim Jones' case, when he was a kid, people would just all of a sudden feel the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Maybe they did. I don't know. But, you know, to uh, an observer like me, it would probably look like they're just speaking gibberish. You know, that is no earthly language, but a heavenly one. When I think about speaking in tongues, I just think of parcel tongue from Harry Potter. That's exactly what I thought of, too. Like, uh, like you're thinking <laughs> speaking about... Speaking of uh, snakes. <laughs> yeah, speaking of snakes, like Tom Riddle. Like, just like... <laughs> yeah. So sp That's what I imagine. So speaking of snakes, that's another one. He went to churches as a kid where they would pass snakes around. And the the theory is if the snake bites you, it's a sign that you're bad. And I, I actually, I had a friend in college, and we might cut this out, but I had a friend in college who... Don't cut this out. His uncle took him to one of these, and he didn't participate, but basically they had snakes in like a bucket, and they would pass it around. And, and basically no one ever gets bitten. But if you did, they specifically cannot save that person. They have to let that person die. What? Dude, this is just like... Did they just let you die? Did he pick up the snake, this person? 
uh, this person didn't. His, he said his uncle participated, but he said it was like he was pretty sure the snakes were like drugged and they never bit anyone. Mm, but that's that's classic. Yeah, that's classic magic slash faith healing. Yeah. So this religion, I believe that we're talking about, is Pentecostalism. Yep. Yep. That's yeah. So Pentecostalism is, uh, it, and I don't know if anybody else is like me, where you've seen these YouTube videos of like, of it's literally what you're talking about, Paz, where <laughs> it's, where it's, yeah, they're bringing out the snake, they're twirling the snake around, <laughs> and they're and they're talking about how it's never going to bite them because because the spirit won't let him. Yeah. When it turns out, as you say, they have it jacked up with the <laughs> benzoids or something like. Benzos. Yeah. yeah. And uh, no, that's great. Yeah, so this is the environment he's grown up in. Yes. So we, we mentioned his father. So his father was kind of significant in the sense that uh, supposedly the rumor at the time was that his dad was in the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, which or associated with them in some sort of way. Yeah, I think, I think one of the stories I read was uh, Jim brought over a friend when he was 9 or 10 years old, and, and he was black, and his dad turned him away at the door, and... He went off into a rage, and that was one of his first experiences with kind of overt racism. When Jim Jones, this is a younger Jim Jones, and uh, maybe a more uh, bright-eyed Jimmy, jo- uh, J- Jimmy Jones, I just called him Jimmy Jones. Um, Jim Jones, he, he's trying to make positive change in the community, and he, he gets a lot of resistance. So, oh, yeah. Um, so that's one positive thing where I guess he is really pushing to bring up the disenfranchised. Yeah, um, I mean, he he early on does a lot of positive things, which you know we'll probably get into. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. Could even be said that he was one of the key civil rights activists in Indiana. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which a lot of people don't know about. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So he um, graduates high school early and then gets married at the uh, age of eighteen to Marceline Baldwin, and they move to Indianapolis to go to the big city in Indiana. And he starts going to, was it IU? Was that where he started? Or he, I know he finished. IU or Butler, I think. I think he started at uh, Indiana University and then finished his degree at at Butler University. So he um, did get his, yep, he um, attended IU and then eventually graduated from Butler. It it took him a while, but he eventually graduated with the degree in secondary education. Yeah, and I don't know where all this fit in, but he also became a preacher or pastor very quickly. Yeah, so right around the same time, he was he was getting into preaching and being a pastor. An interesting thing that I read was that he wasn't particularly religious, but he was getting he had been spending a lot of time reading, as we mentioned, he had been reading about like Stalin and Marx and like these big communist figures, and he concluded that the way that he was going to progress communist theory in the United States was by was through religion. Yeah, and I think it's important to note too like where we were in the context of history right after World War II, the two emerging superpowers in the world were the US and the USSR and they were you know, they were emerged in the Cold War and communism and socialism were very very unpopular at the time and he being a, a student of Karl Marx and and Joseph Stalin and Vladimir Lenin, like that was probably his kind of backdoor way into trying to advance those ideologies and, and trying to spread that. And and I think the fact that he overtly admitted that he wasn't that interested in, in religion and Christianity is a testament to the fact that his ultimate goal was to advance 
the idea of socialism. And- yeah. And whether or not, regardless of our background, what, how you feel about somebody like somebody passing around a snake and whether or not that's more for show and less for an evidence of faith, that mentality, that flashy, devout, really high-energy practice, that is something that flows through to the eventual church that Jim Jones founds. So that's something that, from his childhood, that that really is prominent as he goes through the, his life. Yeah. And that church is... The People's Temple Christian Church, full gospel. <laughs> yeah. Which he founded in 1960. So he really started getting all this notoriety, and then he he um, does what a prominent preacher pastor does and, and founds his own church. Yeah, yeah. He did have a following already, and he used that to found this church. And so let's talk about all the charity work he did. Because <laughs> there was unbelievable—he did unbelievable amounts of charity work and good. This church— they offered social services like housing. At one point, they're serving, I think, 120 meals a week. They had a system, and this is, you know, this happens gradually. People's Temple goes on for a while, but they had a system to help people kick drugs. And how they would do this is they had a special house where people who were having withdrawals would go in that house. They'd have no access to drugs. They'd experience the withdrawals, the throw up the shaking, and then afterwards they'd have to stay with uh, Church Temple's family, and they would, you know, help them adapt to life now without drugs. And ultimately, of course, they would try to get them into the temple and help them find employment. Mm. But they had, like, they were very successful at helping people kick drugs. So, yeah, a lot of charity work going on initially. Going back, too, to the racial inequality, like, even from the outset of the People's Temple, it was, I think, majority... African-American. And and these were people that were really dealing with kind of systemic racism. And and I I remember reading about one story of a lady who was a member at the church and her electric company had shut off her service. And what Jim Jones did was he went around one Sunday at church and had everyone sign a petition. Then he hand delivered it to the utility company. And the next day they had turned her service back on. And he was he he was big on uh, kind of using the muscle of the of the church's numbers, like three hundred or four hundred people being able to accomplish something for one of the yeah. church members, and he was big on them lifting each other up. Yeah, and that story I think really shows kind of his appeal. Where in church one day he's like, "Does anyone have a problem?" This lady says, "The electric company they." Uh, like my lights are going off at all the times. So I'm living with my grandkids, and he gets everyone in the church to sign a petition. They write it. He hand delivers it to the electric company, and they get it done. And then next Sunday, he brings it up, and she's like, "Oh my goodness, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. You know, it feels like a community. Thank you, especially Jim Jones. Like you can see the appeal of him just getting stuff done. That's very positive. Yeah, it was more action and less talk. Yeah, he was definitely at this point. He is just like a cult of personality in in Indiana mm-hmm. because he so he gets appointed director of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission and they they said that when he would go to these um, he was like the chairman of the committee and he would go to the committee meetings and he would bring his entire church to the meeting and when he like walked in they would all stand and then when he like sat down they would all sit down like he was like just like this. <laughs> 
cult leader. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely very influential. He was yeah. so influential, and everybody that was in his following was so devout that in, in because he was getting things done, getting all yeah. these things done. So, yeah, listen to this crazy integration story. He was sent to an emergency visit to the hospital because he was having bleeding ulcers, and he refused to let the doctors operate on, on him until they immediately integrated the hospital floor. So he was like, until I see a, a black patient come to me and tell me they're operating on him or, you know, he's on this floor, I'm not, you're not going to operate on me. And so this is his just like full send, do whatever he can to help integrate. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah, that's, it was, that's nuts. Yeah, another big thing he did too was like, pushing towards the integration of local businesses like so restaurants for example if there were restaurants that refused to serve black people he would say to them if you integrate i will bring everyone in my congregation here and they will frequent your establishment for the next however long yep. they're going to be extremely profitable and so the the restaurants that integrated did extremely well financially and the ones that didn't the ones that held out like went out of business it kind of showed how like socially perceptive he is where he goes to these business owners oh what do you need what do you really want money well if we integrate they have this church and again they have this huge money pool which they would give people to go to restaurants where, that they did integrate mm -hmm. um it, you know you can kind of see his kind of genius in uh social spheres like it was he really did when he was in indiana there was a reason that the church was becoming so popular or the temple was becoming so popular and it was because they were getting a lot of things done. Yeah. And uh, I think that really raised his celebrity. And then it continued to raise as, as they moved out to Northern yeah. California. Yeah. And, and even at this point, I think it's worth noting, you can still see he has like a huge ego. Indeed. Yeah. And so like you see the signs, but he isn't the monster, you know, that he becomes later. Yeah. At this point, I would say he's just like this hyper charismatic leader yeah. that is um, that people are looking at him and they're being like wow like that people really believe in that guy yeah and uh and then also he's getting he's getting things done um, mm -hmm. which is he doesn't remain that way <laughs> do you guys think that at this point his motives were genuine he really wanted to help people or it was really just a means to an end in terms of serving his hubris and trying to gain a following for his ultimate end goal of spreading socialism uh, million dollar question i, I don't oh, so what do you guys think so right now yeah when he's like so he's living in <laughs> okay so there's two parts of this because i want to say right now he's just but he um, he already has these ideas where he's like trying to push communism and so he's like deceiving people into religion to to push communist communist ideology but yeah. he is getting things done which and communism was actually kind of a popular theory in like certain parts of the country back back yeah. in this time, but then I mean the way that they move to San Francisco is that he tells everybody that nukes are going to drop on any on Indianapolis, yeah, and like they need to move. That doesn't sound very reasonable at the time. Like that's definitely as we see yeah. later with his with his life, he he lies to people. To get to yeah. exert his power okay. over them. Yeah, yeah. So, I think the theory there was they were gonna. He thought he told people that they were gonna drop a nuke on Chicago, and it was close enough in proximity to Indianapolis that they would be wiped out too. So they had to get as far from there as possible. In fairness to that argument, nukes hadn't been around that long. This is like 1950s, 60s. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm like, I, I kind of get where they're coming from. Yeah, Brian, that question, like, do you think his intentions were good at this point when he's like 30, he's doing all this good? Do you think he actually cares about the people and helping them? Or is it just he just wants to be in power and this is how he's doing it? I think if it was a spectrum, he starts out on the wanting to help people and wanting yeah. to help the disenfranchise. And then slowly it moves to feeding his own power. Mm-hmm. And then it moves towards power. But I think at this point, I think he's probably... He's like two sides of the coin. Kind of yeah, thing, right? I think he's so two he's sides. Yeah, But I do think at this time, I think there was a fair amount of he prides himself on this movement. I, I do think there's a lot of ego. Personally, maybe it's just because of what happens later. I don't think his intent is purely like to help people and good-hearted. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Hard to know. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, BMAC? Yeah, I mean, I agree that it was a little bit two-sided, but I also think that he was, you know, for better or worse, he was a visionary who really was able to see from point A to point B, and and I don't think that he would have done any of those good works if he hadn't had those ulterior motives in mind. Yeah, exactly. Just knowing how he slowly kind of evolved into this other guy. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think that that part of him just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I think you're right. If he wasn't the one in charge, if he was just the one helping people and not the leader, I don't think he'd be out there like spending his time just helping people. Yeah. yeah. That's very fair. It is interesting to see the the San Francisco, or not necessarily San Francisco, it's... Um, U- uh, Redwood Valley and Ukiah. Yeah, Ukiah, which is, which is north of San Francisco. Essentially what happens is that, as I mentioned, he... He tells uh, his followers that the world is that the world in the Midwest is going to end, that there's going to be a nuclear fallout after nuclear bombs are going to be dropped on, uh, as you said, BMAC Chicago, and so he says, "All right, everybody, we're going to move to the Redwood Valley, and we're going to and we're going to set up our society there, and yeah. we're going to and it's going to be wonderful, and we're not going to be surrounded by." these racist Indiana, um, some people think that he just felt like Indiana, it just wasn't where he was going to make enough progress yeah. for um, trying to trying to push his progressive ideas because Indiana was, it was just too steeped in, um, yeah. in uh, yeah. negativity, and, I guess. Yeah, and, and not only is he, like, warning them of the nuclear war, he says it came to him in a vision. And so these are the kind of the things, while he's doing these good works, he still has visions. He is, you know, he's, he is like performing miracles. He's basically calling himself God. Like he has all these warning signs. And yeah, one of them is he has this vision of a nuclear war happening on, I think, as you said, July 15th, 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously it doesn't happen. <laughs> and he later just kind of just like pushes that to the side. <laughs> But that was a real fear of people in the U.S. at the time. I mean, the paranoia about nuclear war was was a huge influence on everyone's everyday lives. Like, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had the Bay of Pigs, JFK dealing with all these, Cuba, Venezuela, Russia. And there were, I mean, kids in schools were routinely doing these, like, bomb shelter drills. And so it was it was at the forefront of everyone's minds. And I think Jim Jones really knew that and knew how to play to people's fears. Yeah, and, and he saw an article that says this area is one of like the eight safest places to be in the event of a nuclear catastrophe because of the where it was placed in the world and like wind patterns. So, so that's how they chose kind of that area 
or how he chose. <laughs> and he and he spent two years in Brazil too, like scouting out another area that that article that you mentioned had had touched on as well. And so it was kind of between like San Francisco area and Brazil and and when he spent time in Brazil, that was his first exposure to Guyana as well. Yeah. Okay. So I, there's one story in Brazil which is it, it needs to be shared. So he, he was for for the first 20 years of his marriage, he was uh, faithful and he you know didn't have sex with a bunch of people like all the cult leaders do, <laughs> <laughs> except for this one time. And this is what he says happened. So he's in Brazil, which actually turned out to be pretty unsuccessful, and that's why they went to California and then Jonestown. But he says a diplomat's wife offered to pay $5,000 to an orphanage charity if Jim Jones would have sex with her. And he said it was because he was so attractive and he had so much charm. And he talked to his wife about it. And she was able to put aside her possessiveness for the goodness of the cause. <laughs> and then the woman paid, uh, ended up paying in full because he was such an exceptional lover. It, it's just like the guy's such full of shit. <laughs> like he's that guy. <laughs> he is, yeah. As, we, as we'll learn, like he, you know, Marceline was, was a good wife and she was referred to as mother by everyone in the congregation, but... And she was kind of his his second man, second hand man, so to speak. But at the same time, she put up with a lot of stuff and sacrificed a lot in terms of you know letting him do what he wanted. Yeah, and whether or not that actually happened, but yeah, after twenty years, he definitely had, you know she had to put up with a ton of uh, infidelities. Yes, absolutely. In, in this story, he would share it like up on the pulpit, just to give you an idea. Like he would. He's on the preacher, just talk the up in the podium, just talking about how great he is, yep. including sex. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so they move out to the Redwood Valley. He takes the whole congregation with him. He says, "We're all moving," which is which is a sign of things to come. That if he has that much power, where you can tell everybody that that is in his church that they're going to move to a different part of the country and they all just do it. It shows that, um, and that actually might be even subtly, like a, maybe even subconsciously a factor where he, it seems like he tests his power a lot of times. Yes. And so this move, like it may have been a test of his power to see if he really could get everybody to yeah. be with him. I agree. He definitely tests his control, sees what he can get away with and like takes notes of who's loyal, like who follows him out there. Yeah. And weeds out the people that are, that are not, are not as loyal. So they move out to the Redwood Valley, and uh, the temple is a big hit. The temple ends up, over the next several years, the temple ends up expanding. They open up churches in, I think, San Francisco, uh, north of Los Angeles they had one, and then they might have had one other one in California. So it was kind of growing. They actually, I was reading that they had, um, they basically bought a bunch of Greyhound buses, yeah, and every summer Jim would l- just lead like a caravan that would go across the country, yeah. and he would just go preach in all these cities and basically say, like, if you're tired of capitalism, if you're tired of racism, if you're tired of feeling disenfranchised, and you feel like you want to be a part of a community that cares about everybody, come and live with us, and just get on the bus and come to come to California. Wow. And, like, life will be better there. You can watch the sunsets. Yeah. It'll be great. And bring all your money and the title to your house, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, at this point, I don't know if they were really pitching that as much. 
I think like money wasn't as much of an object of them. But, well, actually, maybe yeah. it changed because at first when they were in Indiana, money wasn't as much of an object because it was just a single church. But then when they moved to Northern California and then they're expanding and they need to fund these things, that was where they, like yeah. you said, BMAC, they they um, started needing to figure out ways to get income from people that were joining as well. So they were saying, yeah, yeah the uh, specifically with elderly folks, if, you, if they would get, um, as the years went on, they realized that tithing was just, was, what's the point of tithing 20% of your income when you can just sign over your house and then the church can just sell your house and then keep that money and then yeah. but at the same time they'll take care of you yeah, which those, is yeah. something where they had like really immaculate elderly living situations mm-hmm. where they were people were treated well and they would just sell all of their belongings and give it to the church and then they would um, live out their years as a part of the community yeah i mean a lot of people if they're they don't ha- they're living in like public nursing homes and they were pretty shitty they offered a great alternative and when you mention the buses it just cracks me up because they're like a touring band they just go to different churches and they perform and then like you said they'll get paid they'll pass around the bucket mm-hmm. maybe after jim jones does a healing or performs a miracle yeah and uh, yeah, he's definitely performing miracles at this stage. I think everybody's got some uh, some interesting anecdotes from his uh, miracle performances. Where there's there's of course the one where he's at church, and there's a video of this one that that people can look it up on YouTube, where he is looking at the elderly woman, and she's in her chair, and she hasn't walked in however much time. She's been paralyzed, and she can't get out of her chair. And then he brings her up. He says, today is your day. You're going to get out of the chair. This is like these debunked faith healing things that that you can watch. This is it, It's exactly that. That was exactly <laughs> what he was doing. He says, I'm going to bring you out of your chair. You're going to rise up and you're going to come and you're going to and you're going to high five me and you're and we're going to just all celebrate. And so <laughs> lo and behold, she gets up out of her chair. And then she doesn't just get up out of her chair. She starts, like, walking a little bit. And then next thing you know, she's just, like, running up and down the aisles. Just, like, r- <laughs> like hasn't walked in hey, how many yeah. years. Seems legit. Running. <laughs> that, that's what out. would happen. <laughs> that was, that's what would happen. And then it turns out, oh, um, it was his secretary, and she was not paralyzed. Yeah. And this secretary, Patty... She was like his hype man. She would run around the church talking in tongues and was like always super energetic. <laughs> so, and the interesting thing is like, so if you're following, and it's, I need to know like, when you have a faith healer, because I know some, it's like a husband-wife operation where the wife is like feeding information to the husband. But if you're Patty in this situation, do you believe in Jim, do you believe in Jim Jones? Do you believe in his cause, even though you know he's lying? Like, you oh. are helping him lie. Dude, th- th- they all do. I think they, because they saw how much good, quote-unquote, the People's Temple is doing. They're like, hey, if this is helping give money so that we can help, you know, our poor community members go to school, put food on their table, I think that they are all for the cause. I think they're all in on it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. There was no way they couldn't have been. Yeah. I mean, another example of his healing was if there was someone who they claimed had cancer had a tumor 
they would uh, they would take them up to the front of the congregation and then bring them back to the bathroom and come back with like a chicken liver and say that he had extracted the the tumor from their body. Yeah. And everyone was just like <laughs> yeah. applaud and go crazy and take it for fact that he had actually like cured this person of cancer. Yeah. And they they would have it in like a napkin and it would yeah, like you're saying molded like chicken liver. It like yeah. <laughs> look like it's got like a heartbeat or something. But everyone had to stay away because you might get infected. <laughs> yeah, you, know, okay. you, you yeah. could get that contagious cancer. Yeah. From the <laughs> from the chicken litter. Another wild one. He claimed, and this is later on when things start to get a little cray cray, but he claimed to raise people from the dead. And how he would do this is someone would faint in a church and then someone would be like, I'm a doctor. Check his vitals, the guy's tongue sticking out, and then Jim Jones is like, I give you life <laughs> And the person would like rise up. And so this is how he claimed to have brought 40 people back from the dead. Yeah, which is incredible. And yeah. this is what he's doing. And these are the things yeah. that he's up to, which yeah. is like decidedly not the progressive platform that he had been pitching when he was back, back starting out in Indiana. Yeah. He's, things are kind of morphing in Northern California where he's getting yeah. to the point where he's doing whatever it takes to get people in. Yeah, he just wants to draw in more and more people, and he's still talking about his communist ideals, his socialist ideals, where he's talking about uh, the community and uh, everybody working together. But things are seeming a little amiss with how he's kind of behaving. Yeah, and obviously, when we tell these stories of the healings, they seem like like how do they not realize this is bullshit? So he would have another thing he would do is he would have these plants. And, you know, you see someone rise up from a wheelchair and you're like, this is bullshit because you just came here for the first time. Mm -hmm. But then they would collect information about the people in the church, whether it's people walking past them when they're in lines or they would hire like private investigators. But then they would say something very personal, personal about the newcomer, like your aunt has cancer or your car broke down. And that information, like when you hear that, and you're the, a newcomer, you're like, how did he know that? And he's performing these healings. Like, mm. people start to believe it. And then the other thing he did with the healings was if someone complained of a headache or, like, pain, you know, he would get the church all riled up and then try to heal them. And a lot of times, you know, you're caught up in the moment and you're like, it's gone. Or if it's not gone, he'll be like, it's because you didn't believe. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's just classic manipulation ta tactics where he's yeah. just he's just telling you that anything good is because of this and anything bad is because you're not trying enough kind of thing. Yeah, where he's <laughs> honing his skills as a as a master manipulator of yeah. of of the people around. Yeah, definitely. And, and there was one healing. <laughs> <laughs> this one was wild. So they had a little baby. A doctor tested him and. Uh, he had he was diagnosed with some heart condition they brought him to Jim Jones you know Jim Jones said he cured it they brought it the child to a second doctor who said it was gone supposedly these were like independent doctors <laughs> this was like <laughs> wait so the child was sick they brought it to Jim Jones yes he said he healed it yes then they brought it to another doctor yes and the doctor said it's cured yes <laughs> I feel like there's so many variables in play. Yeah, I know. <laughs> where it's like, 
feel like uh, like you don't think it's or real. He did it. Or, he did it. or he did it. Maybe he did it. What do you think, Mac? It is amazing how he got so many people to to be in on it, though. Like you would think that one person would would rat him out and say, you know, this guy's a fraud. But yeah, how, how much? Yeah, everybody had their own reasons for believing or pretending to believe, and it seemed like people put that ahead of their own. Yeah. Uh, you know their own sense of what's realistic. Yeah. Ends justify the means. Uh, how much do I have to pay you to do a faith healing with me? Like if I offered you to ten thousand, no, no, I'd go for fun. That'd be a great time. Yeah. <laughs> what about the snake thing? How much would I pay you <laughs> to go to the snake thing where like you get bit, you're dead? Uh, fucking, I'm not doing that. <laughs> but <laughs> whatever, I'll do seventy five k. Seventy five k. What are the high. chances? I don't know. It depends. How holy are you? Are you are you in cahoots with the devil? No, but I'm okay. sure one of those guys like died. Like the, the one of the handlers. Oh, priest. I'm, I'm sure people died. But like, yeah. Wild. Um. Wait. What, what was it that you were saying? How much would you have to pay for what? If someone said to you, I'll donate $50,000 to the charity of your choice if you pretend that I cure your back pain in front of the church. Mm, I, see, when you, when you said that, I thought you were going to do the, you were going to say the sex thing with the diplomat's wife. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so the, to do, to do that, to help somebody with that? Yeah, like to be a part of it. People? Yeah, you're lying to people, but you're to getting $50,000 to uh, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. $50,000, like... A week or like fifty thousand dollars a year, each time you perform a faith healing. Fifty thousand dollars to St. Jude's. Yeah, I would do it because like you, then you just go up to whoever he healed. You go up and after, and you just tell them why you helped, and then they're. Pro- I don't think I don't, I I don't think that's part of the agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the agreement stops after. I'll, I like it. I, I like, like it. I, 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 I fight like shady. Fifty thousand dollars is like a really good cause and the the harm that you're doing is you're lying to someone but it's not changing their condition it's not like you're injecting them with like poison or something like that like you're not necessarily Again, making it worse and justify the means yeah yeah i guess that's why they did it then would you not for do the it? cause would you not do it for fifty thousand? i'd do it and lying i like somebody, i like what you're saying somebody wants yeah a lot of them wants i like what you're saying fight shady with shady and then but the issue is but then people start to put him on a pedestal, and he becomes this monster who leads to these terrible things. And you're yeah, a part once of that. The check cashes. You just come out, expose, write a book. Yeah, classic. I like it. Classic. Write a book in the opposite direction. <laughs> so, Temple's growing. Mm-hmm. Jim Jones is becoming this big, uh, influential, progressive figure out in Northern California. They actually the the church or the temple has like a really big impact on a mayoral race in San Francisco. They really whip up the votes and they help a um, socialist, I don't know if it was like a socialist candidate or just like a left-leaning candidate win the mayoral race. And when that happened, it kind of validated Jim Jones as like this kind of person who could really galvanize the left base. And it led to him. He had meetings with Walter Mondale, who was the VP of Jimmy Carter he like rode on a private plane like on the vp's plane yeah he met with the first lady he met with all sorts of harvey milk who was uh there's a movie called milk honestly this is all i know about him there's a movie <laughs> called milk where he was a big like gay rights activist yeah, in he san was francisco. he was a huge gay rights activist in san francisco 
and has a movie about him where he's played by Sean Penn. And Harvey Milk, literally, even after they end up going to Jonestown, Harvey Milk was, like, still defending him. Like, he, like, really made waves in the California community. Um, Yeah. That's the thing, is if you go visit People's Temple and they're doing all this good, you know, you're Jimmy Carter's wife or you're the milkman. (laughs) Like, you... You were going to be like, they're doing great things out there. Unbeknownst to you, he's like this cult leader doing all these terrible things. He was he was very hypocritical in terms of both, you know, sexual activity and drug use. Mm. He, he, as you mentioned earlier, he was faithful to his wife for the first 20 years of their marriage before ultimately getting her permission or, you know, telling her that this was the way it was going to be, that he was going to start sleeping with other women in the congregation and even even women who came in to be members as married women he would just like kind of select them and say you know you're you're my side piece now we're gonna start having sex and his wife just like had to be okay with it and i think at one point what's up you hear that is that the cult alarm that's the fus alarm we're about to get into some fucked up shit. <laughs> BMAC, it kind of cut you off. The alarm kind of cut you off there. So if you want to continue what you were saying. Yeah. I we're no, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, respectful of the FUS alarm. And <laughs> I think, I, I mean, one of the, one of the best, you know, one of the best examples of this was, I think his name was Tim Stewin. He was like the head legal, legal mind of the temple mm-hmm. and he was one of Jim Jones's most trusted advisors. Um, he came in with his wife Grace was initially very reluctant and didn't know what to make of Jim Jones and ultimately he convinced them both to, to join and be loyal members and then he ended up breaking up their marriage because he wanted her to be his mistress ended up fathering a child with her and that that became a source of, of huge controversy and, a, and a, a piece of the downfall later on. But, yeah, he pretty much just, like, had sex with whoever he wanted to. Yeah, it was, like, this power exertion thing where he was exerting power on people, and we can, like, just get... Let's let's just get into... Like, let's the go weird... down the sex. All right, so, but the f- the first member he went with, which I, I believe her name was, like, Carolyn or Caroline, Carolyn, and... Caroline. And so he his... <laughs> uh, he... His wife and him, they, like, didn't have much sex for, like, five, ten years because she had back issues. And it eventually got so bad that he went to her and was like, for me to fulfill my responsibilities, I need to release my urges. And he selected this Carolyn girl, and she becomes this mistress. And the kind of the funky thing about this is he told his kids, he went to his kids and was like, your mom's not, can't satisfy me anymore. So I'm going to have this special friend, Caroline, and he would like spend three nights in one place, four nights in the other, but they kept it secret and eventually it just went to like every member. He started fucking everyone. Yeah. And he, and it was not just the women. He was, he was having sex with the men too. And one of the crazy things is that he had this weird thing where he would like tell everybody that they were all homosexuals. And so like... So he would say, Paz and BMAC, you're a, you're a male and female married couple. 
Um, <laughs> you're the example <laughs> of the people I have in front of me. You're you're a um, a married couple in this case. Uh, BMAC, you're a lovely wife, and Paz, you are uh, you're a loving husband, and you are very heterosexual. You thank love you each for other. calling me lovely. <laughs> you are lovely. You you love each other very much. You have uh, you have perhaps an active sex life, and you are. Uh, <laughs> We do, <laughs> and um, and and you have no, you you just aren't gay, <laughs> and what Jim Jones would say is wrong. Like you are homosexual. Like you do not actually love each other, and or in that way, you are not. You do not feel those those intimate feelings towards each other. And he would basically try to force people to be celibate with their husband, between their husband and wife. And then he would go up to the husband and he'd be like, you know, and somebody, and somebody said that he said this to him. And this is like kind of a quote, so please excuse the vulgarity. He's like, you know, if you need somebody to fuck you in the ass, I'll do it. <laughs> He didn't mince words. <laughs> he, didn't he, was, mince he, was, words. he was very forward. But I think his son, uh, Stephen Jones, later said that he thought that his father like felt guilty about the fact that he was clearly bisexual. And so because of that, he then like tried to convince everyone else that they were also bisexual or homosexual. Mm. And, you know, that was, I think, a big part of the sexual openness of the entire thing like he encouraged people to be very open about who they were sleeping with at the time he he was also kind of a control freak like he he had to approve everyone's relationship in the temple whether they were getting in a relationship or breaking up he tried to set up his his kids and other young people in the church with each other and he was just kind of a control freak about what everyone was doing mm. Yeah, Paz, has a, Paz has a book open. Right now. <laughs> I'm excited to see where this goes. Paz has a book open. We're doing a little live reading, but like BMAC said, he was so open. So what he would do is he'd go up to the front of the church and be like, "Everyone who has had sex, raise your hand." And then people do. And then he's like, he calls someone out. Who'd you have sex with? My wife. Did you enjoy it? Yes. Then he'd ask details, and then he would ask other members to start giving testimonies. And I'm going to just read this from the book. The testimonies become increasingly bizarre. One woman stands up and tells of having sex with dogs. Another confesses to an experience with a horse. And then Jim Jones goes on to say, I am the only true homosexual here, despite the fact that he has sex with guys. Heterosexual or homosexual? He said he's the only heterosexual. Oh, he's the only heterosexual there. Yeah. Yeah, despite the fact... Well, he's satisfying the, the other guy's urges. As yes, yes, as he would say. Yep. And then women start coming up to the podium, and they testify what a fantastic lay this Jim Jones is. Again, reading from the book, he satisfied her as no man has ever satisfied her before. Another woman stands up and gives a similar story. And then he starts you know, boasting about how all women are attracted to him and how he could please every woman here. Just wild stuff. I'm sorry. I have another one on the, on like the, the, the men having sex with them, even though they're not uh, gay. And then, and then somebody else is like, so Hugh here has like 
Jim, like, who here is, like, Jim had sex with? And, like, a bunch of guys, like, raised their hands. Like, like, like more and more of them are like, raising their hands. He's having sex with, like, all of them. And then, like, the one, the one guy who was telling the story in this documentary, he's like, I was standing there and I was like, what is going on? He's like, he's like, is there something I don't know? He's like, I've seen, like I'm pretty happy with my wife. Like, is there just some like That's what level you think. I've not reached yet? That's what he thinks. But yeah, it was per- pervasive. He was he was uh, exercising his uh, sexual prowess on everyone. Yeah. Um, any more sex stories? I want to talk about Father Divine, but do we have some more sex stories? I do not think I have any more uh, sex stories at this moment. So, like I said, <laughs> sex, sex, and drugs were his two big, uh, two big rules that he broke. Yeah, so. he, was, he was into the amphetamines. He was into the drugs. He was into the sex, men and women. He would like talk about the amphetamines. I mean, he was that was part of his paranoia. He be, was becoming increasingly paranoid as time was going on, and this could maybe segue into our next um, section here, where he was getting increasingly paranoid. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he was he was paranoid about the U.S. government. You know, this was I think this was around the late '60s, early '70s when like Martin Luther King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in '68 and. He kind of thought that like the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover were coming for him, and he thought that everyone was out to get the People's Temple, um, especially in a time with social uh, heightened anxieties around socialism and communism. Um, and so he started exploring other places that the People's Temple could move. You know, at this point, they had a pretty big national presence, having expanded to San Francisco and Los Angeles, and doing regular trips around the country. Um, but you know they they were starting to look at other options, including South America. Yeah, and all these like conspiracies about the CIA or the FBI. When he's telling his followers, they basically have no other news source. They're working all the time. All they talk to is people within their own little like compound, or and so they have no other news source, and they just take everything this God on Earth says. Like to the T. Yep, he's the, he's c- controlling all the information that they're getting, and he's like working them to the point where they're being more submissive, and he's just using his master mun- manipulation abilities, and he's kind of setting the stage for a big play. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and going back as far as uh, his his days where he went down to Brazil because of that Esquire article he had been exposed to different countries in south america and i think they eventually settled on guyana which had just become independent from great britain and so their their government was going through a period of transition and was very amenable to a commune or socialist community that would that would come live with them and and live in their country and um their economy was really struggling too. Like they were having, they had some coastal communities that had good shipping economies like Georgetown, but mm-hmm. inland it was really just like this thick, dense jungle where you couldn't support any type of living community. So they were happy to have anyone come in and, and settle. And uh, especially like, you know, 800 to 900 people at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a guy that, you know, claims to be really good friends with Jimmy Carter is like, you know, has all these powerful people who say good things about him. Yep. He was definitely, um, 
he was definitely an influential figure in the U.S. at that point. So much more so than I thought going into my research. The I did not anticipate that he was going to be such a prominent player, specifically in like oh, Indiana definitely and California politics. So he was praised, you know, a lot of different places, and and he had influence at this point. He had helped the mayor of San Francisco win his race. And he expected that that would be sort of a quid pro quo in terms of, you know, gaining influence within City Hall after that. He was becoming more and more powerful. Um, But with that came more attention and uh, different newspapers. Like, I think it was the San Francisco Chronicle or the Examiner that was, was it the Chronicle? That started running these articles, these exposés on the People's Temple. And... um, that was when he really started to get paranoid and nervous and when when his paranoia became more of a reality. It's fair, probably fair to say. Yeah, so at this point they've been constructing Jonestown. This is going to be their um, their oasis that they're, they're going to leave to. And the San Francisco Chronicle, as you mentioned, BMAC, they start interviewing people that are no longer within the People's Temple. And they're interviewing them, and they're finding out about um, abuse, and they're finding out about people's money and belongings being taken and basically just given to Jim Jones to do as he sees fit. And they're starting to ask questions. And the, their big expose, where I think they had like 10 different people that were saying things that were disparaging against Jim Jones, as it was about to come out, he like called the editor and had like convinced the editor to read the article to him out loud like the day before it was going to be released and basically like as the editor they were recording it on the people's temple side and like as it was being read to him he was like mouthing to people like we're leaving tonight like we are going to leave right now because they did not want to deal with the scrutiny that was going to happen when the uh, time was right yeah, for sure the time was right and people were willing to go wherever you know he had he had drummed up paranoia and his followers and they were they were worried about all these groups that were coming for them they were afraid of it and and he talked about this promised land in in Guyana which was of course called Jonestown after him he he spoke of this like caribbean paradise and uh you know didn't didn't necessarily turn out to be that way but it was uh it was referred to as the promised land and people it was something people could believe in as something that was the logical next step mm-hmm. yeah. so jim he's gotten into this cult of personality he's become the leader of this now large organization and then bad news articles coming out <laughs> i think uh like some people would probably want to do if a big expose is going to come out about them. Let's just move to another country. So everybody packs up and moves down to Guyana to go live at Jonestown. And I I want to say it's like a thousand people at this point. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was around 900 people that they had 4,000 to 5,000 members in San Francisco area. But uh, I think it was only about 900 people and people and there was a long waiting list like people they weren't begging people to come with them like people mm. were really eager to go down there and he, he had really been talking it up and uh in terms of like actual logistics like obviously it seems like especially in the 1970s it would have been kind of difficult to move that many people down there into a 500 acre plot of jungle like mm-hmm. at this point they were pretty financially flush to the point where they were having temple members like fly to switzerland with cash like strapped to their body 
in the form of like totaling thirty million dollars that they were putting in Swiss banks, and so they they were pretty flush financially, and yet they were still demanding that all of the members like tithe thirty percent of their income and like give up all of their possessions to give to the church. Yeah. So let's talk about what Jonestown was like. <laughs> so, and as you alluded to, Slavo earlier, they, like, he already moved them, you know, a portion of people from Indiana to California, and now he's getting even more isolated in this socialist-friendly government. But, so they had a compound, and it was pretty well-functioning, kind of surprisingly, what they were able to do in the middle of the jungle. They had daycares, they had education that was like semi-approved by the Guyana government. They had medical supplies at incubators for babies. And they also had a, a radio, a megaphone that like almost 24 hours a day was just playing Jim Jones sermons. It just well, Not even sermons. At this point, it's just his rants because he's not even talking about like religion anymore. It's just about the enemies. The CIA is looking to come and get them. And they would just listen to this all day long um, and that was literally their only news source they have like basically no other contact with the outside world minus letters which jim jones reads himself it's uh crazy yeah you make a good point paz and that like at this point he's not even talking about religion really anymore he's like really just talking about communism and socialist ideology he's given up all pretense of of being a, a Christian pastor at this point, and, and probably had been for years, but yeah, he had gone he had gone full North Korea, just like cutting off all contact to the outside world. There was miles and miles of, of just jungle, and the the one road that went to Jonestown was kind of closed off, and they had armed guards, and there was kind of there was kind of no one allowed in and out, with a very few exceptions. Yeah, I agree with that so much. I kept thinking of that. I was like, this is like North Korea, like his little compound. He took all their passports. They really couldn't leave if he would be like, the CIA has informants. And he's like, how do we know who, which one amongst us is a CIA informant if they say bad things about Jim Jones? So everyone's looking to turn everyone else in. It's just, it's so much like the North Korea. Yeah, they said it was so hard to defect because even like the kids, if you told your kids pack a bag because we're gonna leave they would run away to go tell on you and then you would then be punished um, and all the letters sent in and out of Jonestown especially sent out were monitored to the point where if the the full contents of the letters weren't like praising Jim Jones and the people's temple like they would they would basically like redline it and send it back to you and say make all these changes before you can send it back out because we we don't want anyone getting any kind of hunch that you want to leave or that you're not totally and completely happy here yeah it's definitely it it's getting to the point where um it, it it does seem like there are a lot of people that are still just like happy to be there i think the people who are following the rules and if you're following the rules and you're not getting punished and you don't want to leave and like this is your community and this is your family i think those people were um and like they were still believing in the cause i think those people were still having a good time there but it was the people that weren't having a good time that whether they were being sexually abused or they were being physically abused for not being a, a good enough supporter or they were um, they missed their family and they wanted to go home and they weren't allowed to go home yeah it was definitely becoming a prison-like yeah environment yeah no people were certainly happy there um 
but obviously horrible stuff is going on. He, he was known to uh, drug females, concubines that he would have sex with. Yeah, very terrible stuff going on. But at the same time, some people really liked it and believed in the mission that they were showing the they were going to show the world how like communist socialist society lived. Mm-hmm. So at one point, Jim Jones has everybody drink Kool Aid, and then after everybody drinks the Kool Aid, then says it's been poisoned. I poisoned the Kool Aid, and we're all going to die. And then a few minutes later, or however much later, he then says, I actually didn't poison the Kool Aid. I was just testing everybody to make sure that we were all supporting the cause. And it seemed like people didn't even really freak out that much. Like people were people were generally like a little on edge when they thought that they were gonna be dying, but for the most part, it seemed like mass suicide was something that had been contemplated in the past. And in Jim Jones's mind, and he probably shared this with his followers too, like this was this was an end goal potentially of what they were trying to accomplish and, and something that would be an ultimate uh, message to send the world. No, he, he very much would point out to times in history when enemies would commit suicide when they were in grave danger to avoid, like, to, to avoid the enemies... Uh, capturing them. Capturing them. But, but also, so this even happened in California where he did this. He gave people what they thought were wine and then he was like... No, it's, it's actually poison. They freaked out. And then while there and things are getting more tense, he starts doing what I believe he calls this white knighting. And he would eventually tell them, hey, this is poisoned. We should drink it. We need to make a statement about our revolutionary cause. And when he first did it, some people even like started putting up like, no, like we shouldn't kill ourselves. Like, shouldn't we at least take down as much of the enemies as we can? And to the point of he made like armed guards force people to drink these drinks and they did. And then afterwards he'd be like, okay, that wasn't poison. I was just testing your loyalty, almost preparing them for obviously what would ultimately happen. Yeah. And again, exerting his power over them and controlling them and being manipulative um, and just pushing them to the point where they're just going to do whatever he does, whatever he says, and proving to himself that he can make them do whatever he, he wants them to do. Absolutely. But his his paranoia his paranoia wasn't always totally unjustified either. There were, you know, there was a congressman that ultimately took interest in Jim Jones. I believe he was the congressman from California's 14th district, Leo Ryan, mm-hmm. and he had been alerted to you know some potential uh mistreating of of jim jones's followers and got him you know started talking to this group called the concerned relatives that were family members of of people that were in the commune in jonestown and uh ultimately planned a trip down to visit jonestown because he wasn't buying it that people were totally happy there and didn't want it to fact yeah and when he went down there initially he was pretty surprised how things were they treated these guests this politician a news crew some of these concerned family members they treated them very well they put on a dance like a performance and they were mm-hmm. dancing did you see the video of the yeah of the, the party yeah everybody seemed like they were having a like a great time 
it was very like emotional and like very like exciting. Yeah, yeah. And he, this representative, he got up there and was like, "Some people were very concerned about you, but I, but some people who are here in Jonestown think this is the best thing to ever happen to them." And then ultimately, he opens up the option for people to defect and go home if they want. And ultimately, twenty six people ultimately want to defect i think like you know maybe 11 of them honestly just ran away at night the rest came with the representative and that was actually a pretty small number we're talking about 900 people and so he was surprised he thought he was going he thought there was going to be a ton of people defecting and that they were actually there by enforcement but jim jones was like oh no they can leave whenever they want mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so the so the peak was probably when he was saying that, when he was like, you, "Like some of these people seem as happy as like the happiest they've ever been in their lives," and like the crowd like erupts. But then it was later on that night that somebody brings uh, like a note and slips a note to one of the reporters or something like that, and it's saying that they want to defect. And then the next day, it kind of expands, like more people are hearing about it, and then things are kind of growing. And like you said, it eventually got to 26 or so people. At this point, like things are deteriorating. Like Jim Jones, being the narcissist that he is, he does not want to have these people defecting, but he's kind of portraying that it's, he's okay with it. Um, to but, him, it was a slippery slope, right? Like he, you know, nominally he doesn't care about 26 people leaving out of 909, but it's a slippery slope where if other members see other people leaving like they're gonna want they're gonna start wanting to leave too and then all of a sudden he's got nobody left mm-hmm. and but they they had enough people that were that said that they wanted to defect to the point where leo ryan like ordered a second plane to come get the rest of the defectors mm-hmm. and so that was i think that was when jim jones really decided that enough was enough and he was gonna do something about it yeah and so <laughs> so this is where like People are, um, like, some people are defecting, and then some people are being like, don't, don't leave, and, like, everything's just, like, shit's kind of hitting the fan. And then there, uh, there's this guy, uh, Don Sly. Is that his name? Don Sly? BMAC is affirming, yes, that that is his name. <laughs> Thank you, historian BMAC, for uh, confirming. I got you. Don Sly. Uh, so Don, Don Sly's crying, and he's, like, shaking and shivering, and he goes up to Leo Ryan, like, and you think he's going to defect? No, pulls out a knife, goes to stab straight for the jugular. Yeah, goes to kill Leo Ryan, and ends up like f- like people like jump on him and he falls and like he hesitated him. at the last minute. He like he he couldn't bring himself to do it. Really? Yeah, and and he he like had it right at his neck, and they were saying that Jim Jones like directly told him to do that, and he he was convinced that Leo Ryan wasn't going to make it out of Jonestown alive that day. But when he survived that incident and brought the defectors to the airstrip, that's when Jim Jones decided to send five or six of his armed guards after them with Red Brigade with guns. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the um, and leading up to this, everybody who was in this traveling American party thought they would be safe because they had like the the congressional, they had the shield, the congressional shield is what they called it, where it was like there's no way they're going to hurt us if we have Leo Ryan here because he's like, he's a congressman like that, that would be ridiculous if they were to do that, why would like, 
they they would really bring a lot of pain down on themselves if they were if they were to harm them, harm him and the people he was with. Um, but it, but as it ultimately we find out that they they didn't care, or at least Jim didn't care. Yeah, uh, Jim specifically, they were very suicidal. Um, and uh, again, he was so paranoid. He be- he honestly may have believed that they were going to send back a bunch of troops, and he would have to fight to his death. And on top of this, like his drug addiction at this point is so bad that he would routinely pass out from drugs and be like put in the tents. Like he is uh, so paranoid at this point. Yeah, he's completely off his rocker, and um, most of his time was probably high on drugs at yeah. this point. He was yeah. he was definitely high more than he was sober. Yeah, he's lost all of his um, even his like socialist and communist ideals. He's lost those. He um, is really just everything is self-serving to him at this point. He was well. He was talking about moving everybody to the USSR and was telling everybody that that was a real possibility. But in reality, they had like one meeting with the ambassador to the USSR and like nothing came of it. But that's still what he was telling everybody. But yeah. at this point, you know, um, morale was very low. It's fair to say. Yeah. So as BMAC mentioned, Leo Ryan and his crew, they're heading to the airport. They get to the airport. There's two planes waiting there. They have their defectors that are coming with them. They have the whole news crew. Uh, they have his aides. They pull up to the planes, and then all of a sudden this dump truck comes out of nowhere, driving onto the tarmac. The dump truck drives up to them, and then hiding in the back are the, uh, the Red Brigade, the armed guards, that they pop up and just open fire on all of the traveling party um, with Leo Ryan and um, just start, um, yeah, like a like a drive-by gang war shooting. They just start shooting everybody. Yeah. Even one of the defectors that went with them, one of the defectors was actually a plant, and he pulled out a gun in one of the planes and started shooting people in the plane. Yeah. And basically all hell broke loose. And people were fleeing behind. People were hiding like behind the tires of the planes. People were running off into the woods, trying to and playing dead. And um, um, it was yeah. just very bad. Very bad. And they were using automatic rifles. And uh, the U.S. representative Leo Ryan, he did end up dying along with these other reporters. And uh, yeah, I was I was kind of impressed with. Leo Ryan, because I, I feel like typically when I think of politicians, I just think of them in like rooms making deals, being like, you give me this lobbyist, I'll give you three votes. But he actually hands on directly went to the source of the problem to see what he could do for his constituents. So I was kind of like, wow, this is a congressman who is acting in the interest of his uh, his people. And, you know, he obviously paid the, the ultimate price. Yep. Uh, an interesting thing about Leo Ryan and kind of echoing that sentiment was that he was working on prison reform so he went to a local when um, this is like before this he went to a local prison and lived there for a week as a prisoner to because he wanted to understand undercover right um yeah potentially I'm, yeah i'm not sure it, it, he wanted to understand what it was like to be a prisoner before he started trying to reform the, the prison system Oh, yeah, and he, interestingly enough, was a teacher before he became a politician. 
and one of his one of his aides, I think it was his, his kind of main aide. Um, her name was Jackie Spear, and she was pretty young at the time, but she's she's currently today a representative from that same district in California that Leo Ryan was, and she survived the the shootout. One of the few survivors that day, and she's today a, a representative from that same dis- same district. Yeah, it's, I was actually surprised to see that only five people died from the shootout because you would think that if six people are, or six or however many people are showing up with automatic rifles and you just do not expect that it's an ambush. Um, and there were, I don't know, 25, 30 people when, it came to, when you include the, the pilots and stuff. Yeah, if they wanted to, they could have hunted them all down, but they, you know, for, they didn't. Uh, and I, I didn't know that about his aide, BMAC. That was a that was a fun fact. I I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> I can surprise, you know. <laughs> that, was, that is a very that's a very good fact. Uh, so back in Jonestown. <laughs> yeah, so back in Jonestown, Jim calls a meeting. Everybody comes into the central pavilion, and um, this is when he says. Uh, everybody, it's time. It's time for us to commit revolutionary suicide. The United States is coming down on us, and they're going to capture us, and they're going to torture us. They're going to torture our children, and it's just going to be horrible, and we're going to be taken prisoner, and, and we're all going to die horrible, horrible deaths. So the way that we fight back is we're all just going to commit revolutionary suicide for the good of our cause, and which sets forth uh, a bunch of debates within the within the society, within the organization, less than you would actually expect. I think there are a but, few people, but more than usual. I mean, usually there is absolutely no dissidents in their discussions. It's pretty much whatever Jim Jones says goes. But um, in this case, one of the key dissidents was his wife, Marceline, who was of course there by his side as she had been through everything. And she was very opposed to everybody killing themselves in this instance. Uh, but he kind of he kind of went on anyways and had some of his key people um, fill up, I think, plastic cups with cyanide and like a bunch of Kool Aid. Yeah, it was. Everyone says you know don't don't drink the Kool Aid, but um, you know it was actually a cheaper alternative called Flavor Aid. Which they purchased for like eight dollars. It was like nine hundred people worth of flavor aid. Grape flavor aid. Yeah, they were very thrifty. It's a saying that like when people think of Jim Jones and Jonestown, like that's where the saying like "Don't drink the Kool Aid" comes from, and that's that's a prevalent saying to this day. Um. So yeah. So it was fun fact. It <laughs> so was, back to it was uh, actually flavor aid. So <laughs> another common misconception too was that this mass suicide was wholly and entirely voluntary right like Mm -hmm. in fact it it wasn't voluntary for a lot of people a lot of people were being held against their will injected with cyanide through a needle and um you know the first sadly the first people in the commune to die were the children who were the most Mm -hmm. vulnerable and and were the first to go and then after that they they moved on to the elderly and then to the adults many of whom were we're very resistant. Uh, yeah, going back to one truth and one lie. Jim Jones actually did not die from cyanide poisoning. He was the, he was obviously the last to go after everyone else had died, but he did not die of cyanide poisoning. He went much quicker and was shot in the head, um, presumably by himself. And I think all in all, it ended up being 909 people that ended up losing their lives that day. Um, 
through cyanide poisoning from um, drinking the, the the punch that uh, that was laced with the drugs. Yeah, and I don't know if you guys felt this way while reading and researching on the life of Jim Jones, but. You know, in the beginning and before this, it was almost comical at times when, when you're reading about the healings and bringing people back to life. But then when we got to this part, it was just so dark and so, so fucked up. It was, it was really it somber. Was, like, even on the so... day that this all happened, it was like a nice morning. But then, yeah. like, it was torrential rain and it became like this dark and scary day that this yeah. all happened. And, I mean, I was watching the documentary that I was watching it had like the audio of him talking over the megaphone or whatever as people were drinking as people were going up and losing their lives and voluntarily drinking the Kool-Aid and he is standing up there saying lie lie down come like we we're tired like we need to we need to end this and just urging people this person who was in so much power and like yeah and people looked up to you so much that they had moved some of them had moved twice once to northern california and then once down to south america on his behalf and he is just standing there telling them all to go and kill themselves yeah it's such a tragedy and especially for like the 304 kids where it's like you know by no way was it their, their suicide or they want to do that. You know, with some of the adults, Babies. They, they make that decision potentially. Some of them did try to escape and are forced, but it's it's just so tragic. Yeah, so fuck Jim Jones. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, interestingly enough, Jim Jones Jr. and two other of his brothers were um, not there that day. They were actually playing for the Temple basketball team, and they were playing against the Guyana national basketball team in a, in a basketball game in Georgetown. So they um, actually weren't there. Um, they ended up surviving the, the whole ordeal. There were other people that weren't there at the time, and um, like some of the people that were apprehended at the airport, they um, didn't end up dying. I think there were some people that were there there were some people that were there at Jonestown when it happened that didn't actually end up drinking the drinking the punch, but it was like not many. The vast, vast, vast majority of the people did it. Yeah, and his, you know, two of his remaining sons, uh, Stephen Jones and Jim Jones Jr., who was a, a black adopted son. Um, they, you know, Stephen Jones was, I think, his only biological son. Uh, he had, I don't know if we touched on this, but him and uh, Marcelin had, I think, seven children, but only one was biological. The rest were adopted from from different countries. But Stephen and Jim Jr. are both, you know, pretty outspoken today in terms of being pretty honest about who their father actually was, and you know, the, the fact that he was a really bad guy. And they've done a number of documentaries where they've been interviewed in the aftermath. Yeah, and he had what they called like a rainbow family where he was trying to adopt from all these different, you know, ethnicities. And in one documentary I saw, uh, Jim Jones Jr., his namesake, who, like BMAC said, was black. He said Jim Jones would always introduce him as my adopted black son. And 
and, and he, he said like never just hey this is my son Jim um, and again so if, if you're wondering like where his intentions actually were uh, maybe Jim Jones intentions weren't actually about equality but about you know using it as a platform to yeah exercise power yeah Yep. Uh, yep. Well, we could to uh, ch- change the mood a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we talked about doing another segment: groups that could become cults. <laughs> yeah, groups that are that are maybe one uh, one component, one aspect away from being a cult. Yep. Yep. Uh, who wants you to go first? Sure. Sure. Okay. This one is maybe a little obvious, but flat earthers. <laughs> they already don't believe in any outside information. They don't trust the planes that go from San Francisco to China. They don't trust NASA or science. So I feel like you can just tell them whatever, and if you do it convincingly. Can I piggyback on that one? Go for it. Chemtrail people. <laughs> I think they, they can get lumped in with the flat earthers. Flat earthers and chemtrails. I think they're the same people. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to do a Venn diagram of flat earthers and chemtrail people, There'd be some overlap, there, for sure. It would basically it would be, it would basically look like a a full moon. <laughs> <laughs> if uh if flat earthers had a cult leader, would you say Kyrie would Kyrie Irving be that guy? Kyrie Irving would be the leader. Is he the is he the uh, the the missing leader for the cult? Potentially. Um, mine would be cryptocurrency investors. <laughs> <laughs> so, cryptocurrency has been kind of this you know not very well known way of investing until very recently. Um, but the people who are into it, you'll notice that they're very into it. And they talk about it a lot, and they're convinced that it's the the future. So, is the one thing cryptocurrency is missing is a leader to become a true cult? They're basically missing. Uh, <laughs> I, I am gonna say yes because this is gonna lead into my next cult, which is. Tesla people slash like just Elon Musk's followers. Robin Hood Tesla investors. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, I think they're like almost there. <laughs> like, I'm not sure if there's anything that needs to happen with the with the Elon Musk folks to make it so it becomes a cult because like, I think in a lot of ways it already is. Dude, it, it will definitely happen when they land on Mars <laughs> and start this new compound. Yeah. Is he going to become like supreme leader of Mars? Or is are the, is the computer going to be the supreme cult leader? Or is Elon Musk the computer? Alien. <laughs> I'd buy it. Any more? There, there was, because there was, I wanted to touch on Father Divine. Just for a second. Go ahead. Um, so, real quick, this was this guy before Jim Jones. He was a preacher. He claimed to be from God. And Jim Jones actually met with him and, like, learned things from him. He was based in New York for a while. I believe went to Pennsylvania. But anyways, I just thought I, this story was hilarious. He, his wife, was old and very sick with cancer. Um, but Father Divine said he would prevent her from dying. And then uh, his wife does, in fact, die. But then a little while later, he marries a 26-year-old woman, 
and claims she is the reincarnation of his wife and that he did, in <laughs> fact, save her. <laughs> That's incredible. And then, so Jim, so then Father Divine dies, but he always says he would be reincarnated. So Jim Jones goes back to this mission and he wants all their members. Um, and they invite him to speak and he gives a huge speech, but then he sa- he claims to be the reincarnation of Father Divine. His reincarnation came into Jim Jones and the, his wife, Mother Divine, had no part of it. It was like, you are not the reincarnated Father Divine. Kicks him out. On the bus ride back, Jim Jones explains that actually Mother Divine bared her breast to him and tried to seduce him. But because Jim Jones would not have sex with her, she uh, kicked them out. And that was why. Gasolating. That's gasolating. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very Jim Jones story. Thank you for for that. I I did not know that at all. So two truths and a lie. One truth and one lie. One truth, one lie. Oh, I can start with mine. Um... So my two were that Jim Jones Jr. survived the events at Jonestown. And my other was that uh, Jim Jones had a sit-down meeting with Jimmy Carter when he was president. The truth was that Jim Jones Jr. did survive Jonestown. He was at that basketball game. Uh, Jim Jones did not sit down with Jimmy Carter. He actually was had a plane ride with Walter Mondale, Jimmy Carter's uh, VP. So, not quite. Interesting. Fun fact about Walter Mondale. He lost the most lopsided presidential race in history. 1984 presidential election. Ronald Reagan won 49 out of 50 states, defeating Walter Mondale. Ouch. What was the one state, you know? I do not. But you know it's bad when when California and New York were red that year. Um, So, my one truth and one lie... um, my lie was that Jim Jones died of cyanide poisoning. As I said, he he died from a gunshot wound to the head. Mm. Um, my truth was that Jim Jones and the People's Temple helped get George Moscone elected mayor of San Francisco in 1976. So that was that was kind of Jim Jones's big power grab and, and showing that he had true influence and and uh, had his guy in the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. So my lie was that they did not have an alligator in defense of the temple <laughs> in a pond. Um, the truth was a woman did testify that she had sex with a horse. Who knows if that actually happened or they kind of just testified whatever, you know, they felt like, whatever they felt pressured to do. But, yeah. It, yeah. Well, if the horse was anything like Jim Jones. <laughs> Well, on that note, peace out.